Holy Father, all of creation has a song. We have a song. We want to sing along. We have been much in reflection already. Regarding you as our creator. What does it mean here and now? Teach us through Holy Scripture. And may we be the earth children you have called us to be. In Christ's name. Amen. Did you know that last month, Google turned black in order to go green? Google. Everybody knows Google, of course. The largest internet search engine on this planet. Last month, by the way, in the United States alone, 6.44 billion searches Americans made on Google. Anyway, last month, maybe you saw it on uh, Google.com homepage. This sort of press release notice appeared. Google users in the United States will notice today that we turn the lights out on the Google.com homepage as a gesture to raise awareness of a worldwide energy conservation effort called Earth Hour. Maybe you heard about it. On Saturday, March 29, Earth Hour invites people around the world to turn off their lights for one hour from 8 to 9 p.m. in their local time zone. On this day, cities around the world, including Copenhagen, Chicago, Melbourne, Dubai, and Tel Aviv, will hold events to acknowledge their commitment to energy, energy conservation. Given our company's commitment to environmental awareness and energy efficiency, we strongly support the Earth Hour campaign. And so on March 29, if you had gone to Google.com, this is what you would have seen. Google went black in order to go green. Green, of course, being the operative color of what Paul Hawkins in his new book, Blessed, Blessed Unrest, given to me by my friend Dixie Wong, what Paul Hawkins calls the largest social movement in all of history, the Green Movement, in honor of which today I'm wearing this tie <laughs> that does not belong to me. Three weeks ago, our, our worship leader, Justin Davis, was up front. I said, hey, Justin, in three weeks, I've got to preach on green. Can I borrow your tie? So thank you, Justin. Very nice. We're talking about the green movement. We're talking about the conservation movement. We're talking about Earth Day ecology. Green Google. So here's the pressing question. Do you suppose we have to be as green as Google? The pointed answer is simply we must be greener than Google. I want you to open your Bible with me, please, to the greenest story in all of Holy Scripture. Back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. I want to plunge into this with you, Genesis chapter 1. There is no greener chapter in the entire book. Genesis 1. We're going to pick it up. By the way, I need to warn you, this story starts green, but almost literally overnight, the story turns brown. We'll get to the brown story. Let's start with the green story. Genesis chapter 1. This is in the middle of day 6. God's creation is almost about to wrap up. And when you step into Genesis 1, as you're finding it here, it is, it is the greenest and most luxuriant global garden you can 
possibly imagine. Now, Karen and I love to go to webshots.com. Are you acquainted with webshots.com? These brilliant uh, color photographs from the world over. And, you know, you put those on your screensaver. You put, them, you put them on your desktop. And you ooh and you ah, just as luxuriant glory. We turn to Genesis 1. And while, we, while you and I have witnessed spectacular sunsets and sunrises, this is almost heart-stopping. Take a look at this. Genesis 1.26. This is almost heart-stopping. This first of the green story. Genesis 1.26. If you didn't bring a, a Bible yourself, grab our pew Bible. Same translation, the New King James Version. I want to move to the end of day six. This would be verse 26. Genesis 1.26. Page 1, of course, in your pew Bible. Then God said, creation almost over. Let us make man, ha-adam, from, what's eventually, from whence eventually came the name Adam, but speaking now of humankind. Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Let them, male and female, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created ha-adam. In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I've got to tell you that for some people, there are two very scary verbs tucked away in what we just read. Verb number one, have dominion. And verb number two, subdue. It's almost as if, I mean, you could get the sense that God is somehow granting to the human race a, a despotic rule, sort of a carte blanche permission for unbridled exploitation of nature and her resources. We could make that conclusion with those two verbs were it not for two more verbs quickly inserted into the very green chapter two. You've got to read the two chapters together. So two more verbs. Green chapter 2, go to drop down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend. Here come the two verbs to tend and keep it. Now, that first Hebrew, abad, it means to tend. You can translate it to till. But something fascinating about that Hebrew word is that the verb is very similar to the noun. So abad is very similar to abed. And you find a bed. Listen to this, guys. The very last uh, occurrence in the book of Genesis. You remember uh, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery 18, 12 years later. 12 years later. 19 years later. I'm sorry. 19 years later. Those brothers are gathered in Joseph's presence. So we all know the story of how he, how he introduces himself to them. And in that moment, when they fall to the earth, they cry out the words in Genesis 50. We will be your servants forever. The word servant and the word to tend are identical. Same root. Meaning that when God speaks in Genesis 2 of tending the garden, he is describing serving the earth. Now, hold on. You'll see how this fits. That second verb. Read uh, verse 15 again. Then the Lord took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to tend. And what's the second verb? To keep it. The Hebrew word for keep is shamar. Now, when we were boys, my mother had us memorize the, the 121st Psalm. We often repeated the 121st Psalm at the, 
beginning of uh, the Sabbath at sundown, I want to show you something very fascinating about this word shamar as it appears in Psalm 121. Hold your finger right there in Genesis 1. Find the 121st Psalm. Psalm 121. Look at this. What does that word shamar mean? What, what, what are the implications of this word? All right, we're in the green story. Psalm 121. You remember these words, familiar words. All right, Psalm 121. How's it begin there in verse 1? I will lift up my eyes. Everybody knows this. I will lift up my eyes to the I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. All right, it is a song to the creator. I'm lifting up my eyes to the creator. He will not allow your foot to be moved. Now notice this. He who keeps you. Same word. As Adam and Eve were asked to do in the garden. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4. Behold, he who keeps. There it is again. He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. There it is the third time. The Lord is your shade upon your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall. How does it read? The Lord shall what? Same word again. The translators now have given, have given a slight uh, uh, differential to the word. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve. There it is again. He shall preserve your soul. Finally, verse 8. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that word shamar, which is to keep, is essentially to preserve and to protect, which gives a powerful green truth. That God is attempting to bring to the human race in the very green chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. This truth is so powerful that I wish you take out your green study guide today. Look at this, a green study guide. Have mercy. Take out your green study guide today. Let's scribble it down, will you? Let's jot this. What, what is the green point God is making? Thank you, ushers, for uh, making sure that everybody here gets a green. A green. This is a collector's item. You can sell it on eBay. A green study guide for today's Green Google. Take the study guide. By the way, those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. You can get the same study guide. By the way, it will be green. If you have green paper in your printer, it will come out. I promise you, it'll come out green. <laughs> Go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. www.pmchurch.tv You're looking for a series called God's Party. We are wrapping up this series. Next, next uh, Sabbath, the final installment in God's Party. Yahoo! Perfect way to end the series. But today it's Green Google. So you're looking for God's party. Then you're looking for Green Google. And you're looking for the word beside Green Google that says study guide. When you find study guide, you click on and you will have this same study guide. All right. So let's, let, let's just scribble it in. What is the green point that in the beginning is seeking to make to the human race? First, make sure that you know that we're in the green story. So we, would you fill it in, please? Jot it down. This is the green story. All right. Genesis 1 and 2. The green story. Now keep your pen moving. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Here are the two verbs. To have dominion and to subdue. We looked at those two verbs. Is explained by Genesis 2, 15, where the next two verbs, where to tend means, jot this down, to serve. And to keep means to preserve and protect. I.e., write it down. The rule to rule the earth means to serve creation. When God describes putting the human race on this planet to rule it, to have dominion means you're going to serve it. You're going to protect it. You're going to preserve it. In fact, jot this down. You could say that the Sabbath is God's original earth day for his green agenda from the beginning. 
Because after he gives those orders for the green movement in the beginning, he then gives the Sabbath. Let's read that. Go back to uh, Genesis chapter 2 in your Bible. Back to that green chapter. Genesis chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. The green story. But the tragedy is the green story was not to remain green for long. And we move almost overnight to the brown story. In fact, write it, write it down, please. It's the brown story. Everybody knows the story of the fall. God puts a tree in the middle of the garden. Nothing poisonous in the tree. No evil curse to the tree. It's simply another tree. But in order to have a voting booth, in order to establish that the human race has chosen him, God has given simple instructions for this tree. If you go to this tree, you vote for Lucifer. If you go to this tree, you vote for evil. If you wish to remain on, on my side in this cosmic warfare, stay away from the tree. We know the heartache of Eve and Adam both going to that tree as, as if they were pulling the lever, pulling the lever to that voting booth. They hide. God comes in search of them. Why are you hiding from me? I heard you coming. I was afraid. Why are you afraid? I'm naked. How would you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? Ah, you pulled the lever. Ladies and gentlemen, there are four consequences to the human fall. And I want you to get these down in your study guide, please. Four consequences. Number one, as God begins to talk to them, he says, hey, serpent, I want to tell you something. You are going to be forever changed. Consequence number one is, to the, is that animal life on this planet is affected. The serpent, all of, all of animal life is affected. Number two, God, God looks at the serpent and he says, you know what? The woman is going to have a baby one day and that seed. I'm going to create enmity between you and the human race. The, the entire human life is affected on this planet. That's consequence two. Consequence number three, God comes to Eve and he says, Eve... You're going to still have babies, but it is going to be an awful pain. You're going to bear in pain and labor to bring forth that child. And then God comes to Adam and he says, Adam, I've got to tell you, the whole creation, all of creation will be affected because of your decision. In fact, I want you to read this verse uh, 17 in this tragic Brown story. Verse 17, Genesis 3, verse 17. And then to Adam, God said, this is the creator. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. He says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field in verse 19 in the sweat of your face you shall eat till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and dust to dust you shall return it is brown from here on out you are brown now you go back to the earth and what's the brown story ladies and gentlemen the brown story is simply that as a consequence of our rebellion against the creator and by the way, the brown story is what the green movement does not tell. They either don't know it or don't believe it. But it is a brown story that tells us as a consequence of usurping our divinely ordained dominion on this planet, 
allowing it to be usurped by the fallen angel Lucifer. By voting to choose his side over God's side. It is the Brown story of an entire creation that is plunged into the heartache. The Green Movement does not tell the Brown story. You and I must recognize we live with that Brown story. In fact, the New Testament, even more powerfully than Genesis 3, in a very succinct way, tells from the Green to Brown story. Go to the book of Romans. Our last text we'll look up together. Romans. Romans chapter 8. I want to reflect with you. I want to reflect the meaning of third millennial survivors that we are. How do we relate? How do we relate to the movement, the largest social movement in the history of earth, as Paul Hawkins calls it? Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Drop down to verse 19. By the way, this is, uh, this is page 761 in your pew Bible. For the earnest expectation of the creation. You're going to see those two words, the creation, four times, that little couplet. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Something has gone horribly wrong in creation. And all of creation awaits. The the, the word that uh, Paul uses there is apocalypsis. It waits for the apocalypse. It waits for the, the wrapping up of this tragic experiment in rebellion. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. Nature itself had no choice in the Brown story. The choice was made by the human race. And as a consequence, all of creation is thrown into this horrible dysfunction. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God didn't say, "Okay, nature, I'm going to kill you now because Adam and Eve said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm awfully sorry to do this. I'm awfully sorry that the entire ecosystem now will be plunged into brown. Why did God do it? Because verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered one day. From the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Here comes, here comes the summation. For we know that the whole creation, the entire earth, all of nature groans and labors with child pangs together until now. Jot it down, ladies and gentlemen. There is no more succinct and emotive a retelling of the green to brown story than this. The whole creation groans. We are in Kenya at the Messiah Mara. A couple months ago, this huge, wild kingdom. And I took this picture of a lioness that had just felled a gazelle. Take a look at that picture, ladies and gentlemen. That's the brown story. That's all creation groaning. You think that gazelle chose this consequence? Creation has not sinned. Creation has, cannot be faulted. It got sucked into the brown story because of our choice. All creation, the whole creation groans. Longing for redemption. Oh, good. So let's just wait. Let's just wait till Christ comes and then we get green again forever and ever. Amen. Wrong. Wrong. I want you to listen for a moment. To one of the most articulate voices in the Green Movement, he's Harvard scientist Edward Wilson, hailed by Time magazine as as one of the world's greatest naturalists. 
My son Kirk, as we were flying off to Africa, he said, Dad, you got to read this. You just got to read this book. It's E.O. Wilson's book, new book, The Creation, An Appeal to Save Life on Earth. Now, Kirk is an, an environmental studies a major, double major with communications. And so he's working for Dennis Woodland, the, the resident scientist and botanist on this campus. And so Kirk says, Dad, read it. Yeah, I did. Look at this. Atheist scientist. And here's how the whole, here's how the book is set up. He is writing to an imaginary, he's writing to an imaginary pastor. And the whole book is his passionate appeal to Christians. Here's how it begins. Dear pastor, we have not met. Yet I feel I know you well enough to call you a friend. First of all, we grew up in the same faith. As a boy, I too answered the altar call. I went under the water. He was a Baptist. He grew up a Baptist. I went under the water. Although I no longer belong to that faith, I am confident that if we met and spoke privately of our deepest beliefs, it would be in a spirit of mutual respect and goodwill. I write to you now for your counsel and help. Of course, in doing so, I see no way to avoid the fundamental differences in our respective worldviews. You are a literalist interpreter of Christian Holy Scripture. You reject the conclusion of science that mankind evolved from lower forms. I am a secular humanist, which is kind of a euphemism for atheists. I think existence is what we make of it as individuals. There is no guarantee of life after death. And heaven and hell are what we create for ourselves on this planet. There is no other home. Humanity originated here by evolution from lower forms over millions of years. And yes, I will speak plain. Our ancestors were ape-like animals. Preacher. For you, the glory of an unseen divinity. For me, the glory of the universe revealed at last. You have found your final truth. I'm still searching. I may be wrong. You may be wrong. We may both be partly right. I put it this way. Because you have the power to help solve a great problem about which I care deeply. I hope you have the same concern. I suggest that we set aside our differences in order to save the creation. And creation all through the book is capital C. The defense of living nature is a universal value. It doesn't arise from nor does it promote any religious or ideological dogma. Rather, it serves without discrimination the interests of all humanity. And now take your study guide because I'm going to pick it up right where you have it in your study guide. Pastor, we need your help. The creation, living nature, is in deep trouble. Scientists estimate that if habitat conversion and other destructive human activities continue at their present rates, write this down, half the species of plants and animals on Earth could be either gone or at least faded for early extinction by the end of this century. A full quarter, jot that down, a full quarter will drop to this level during the next half a century as a result of climate change alone. The ongoing extinction rate is calculated in the most conservative estimates to be about a hundred times above that prevailing before humans appeared on Earth. We would say since the fall, extinction, extinction, extinction rate is a hundred times more than it was in the beginning. And it is expected to rise at least a thousand times greater or more in the next few decades. If this rise continues unabated, the cost to humanity in wealth, environmental security and quality of life will be catastrophic. Catastrophic. So writes this atheist scientist. You may well ask at this point, let me just keep re reading a couple more lines. Why me? Ah, because religion and science are the two most powerful forces in the world today, including especially the United States. If religion and science could be united on the common ground of biological conservation, the problem would soon be solved. Now, listen to this. I'm puzzled that so many religious leaders who spiritually represent a large majority of people around the world have hesitated to make protection of the creation an important part of their magisterium. Hold on. 
even more perplexing. Now listen. Is the widespread conviction among Christians that the second coming is imminent. Sound familiar? That the second coming is imminent and that therefore the condition of the planet is of little consequence. For those who believe this form of Christianity, the fate of 10 million other life forms indeed does not matter. Pastor, tell me I am wrong. Is he wrong? Is he wrong about us as a community of faith and learning? Is he wrong about us who have this passionate hope that Jesus is coming soon? And because of that hope, is he right? And in fact, who cares whether we trash the earth or not? It's almost over. Is he wrong? I tell you what, if E.O. Wilson were here today, I'd like to write him a letter back. If he were here today, here's what I'd do. Since he called me by my first name, I'll call him by his first name. Dear Professor, yes, it is true. Yes, it is true. So here's my letter to E.O. Wilson, all right? Yes, it is true. We are Adventists, and we believe that Christ is soon to return to this planet. Nevertheless, we reject the notion that the creation is no longer of any concern to us. For we are not simply little A Adventists, a hope shared by Christians everywhere. No, we are Seventh-day Adventists. Which means that ideally, we should choose to live our lives by the following four credos. Would you write these down in your study guide, please? Number one, we are not products of, nature's, uh, of natural selection's random chance. But we are the creation of a loving and intelligent creator. Write that in. Number two, as a memorial of his creation, God gave to the human race the seventh day Sabbath, a day on which we rest in his friendship and celebrate his handiwork. Write that in. Number three, we therefore are reminded every seventh day that this world of nature is God's entrustment to us for our care. And finally, number four. We recognize that the creation will never be fully healed, though we do recognize that it will never be fully healed of its obvious dysfunction until evil's final eradication. And though we eagerly do await the return of our Savior and Creator, nevertheless, we believe our care of God's creation is required of all who are children of the Creator. Pastor, tell me I am wrong, you wrote. Professor, I wish that you were. In fact, I hope that you are. But let me be quick to assure you that you are also right. For now, more than ever, religion and science, the church and the academy must join forces to fight for the preservation and protection of the creation. Whether or not we believe it to be the product of natural, random selection as you do, or the gift of a loving creator as we do, our radically differing worldviews must not prevent or preclude our joining forces for this shared cause. Your friend, the pastor. So how green shall we then live, we who believe that Jesus is soon to come? Dixie Wong gave me Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Unrest, How the Largest Movement in the World Came Into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming. In that book, this is in your study guide, in that book, he speaks of a rabbinical tradition that holds that if the world is ending and the Messiah arrives, you first plant a tree and then go to find out if the story is true or not. You plant a tree. So how shall we then plant our trees, we who await the return of the Messiah? How shall we color our world green, even while it is still brown? Let me close with ten ways. Ten ways you and I 
as creator-loving, creation-serving, and Sabbath-keeping Christians can turn our world green. All right, ten ways. Write them down. Ten ways. Num- oh, but please get this. This is now a part of the back to green story. Now, back to green. Back to green. We were green, then we were brown. And now, finally, how do we get back to green? Number one, eat greens. Become a vegetarian. New York Times, January 26th, this year, carried a piece entitled, Rethinking the Meat Guzzler that is Food for Thought. Keep your pen ready. Americans, get this, guys. Americans consume, that means grow and kill, 10 billion animals a year. Just Americans. All right? Write that down. Number two, jot this down. An estimated 30% of the Earth's ice-free land is directly or indirectly involved in livestock production, which generates nearly a fifth of the world's greenhouse gases, more than even transportation. Can you believe it? More than transportation, those animals. 800 million, you don't have this down, but let me tell you, 800 million human beings suffer from hunger and malnutrition. And yet, guess what? The dominant, the dominant purpose... For growing corn and soy is not to feed the hungry. It's to stock up the animals that we will then kill to eat. Jot this one down. Two to five times more grain, as much as ten times more in the United States, is required to produce the same amount of calories through livestock as through direct grain consumption. Listen, you want to live healthy? Take the grain in your hand and shove it down your mouth. Don't eat it after the cow has eaten it. Just shove it down your mouth. You don't need all that stuff on top of it. One more. The environmental impact of growing so much grain for animal feed is profound. Agriculture in the U.S., much of which now serves the demand for meat, contributes nearly three-quarters of all water quality problems in the nation's rivers and streams, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, I need you to hear me very, very, very clearly now. Strictly, all right? Strictly from an ecological or green perspective. Let's just deal with it that way. Not saying a word about the massive health costs carried by disease-causing animal flesh consumption. Not saying a word about that. Not saying a word about the moral issue of animal cruelty in our assembly line, hormone-injected animal production and slaughter. Strictly from a green perspective. It is both incongruous and inconsistent for anyone advocating environmental stewardship to adopt a diet that requires the raping of both animals and farmlands for the sake of meat meat consumption. It is absolutely incongruous. The next time you're at McDonald's and you're wolfing down that cheeseburger, I want you to think, no, I'm serious. Because we have a whole lot of people walking around saying, I'm, I'm green, man, I'm green, I'm, I'm into this green movement. Bring it on. Okay, put your money where your mouth is. The next time you wolf down that double whopper, you ask yourself the implications of my purchasing this product sustains a, an industry that is destroying this planet. Go green, eat greens, number one. Number two. And by the way, for two through nine, I'm, in, I'm indebted to, uh, to Ashley Burnett, 
in last week's student movement. Delightful little piece she put together. So numbers two through nine are from her. This is good stuff. So just scribble these down. We'll fly through it. Number two. Number one is eat greens. Number two, power down. What you talking about? She's talking about turn off the lights. I went to the Sierra Club's website and found out that 44% of the electricity we use in our offices and buildings and classrooms, 44% of that, 44% of the electricity is from lights alone. Just turn the light out when you leave. Just turn the light out when you leave. You can help the earth. Turn it off. Power down. Number three. Well, I like this. This is Ashley. Tune up, pump up, and team up. Tune up means if you've got that old... That old belching car that keeps blowing blue smoke all through campus. Get it tuned. Just get the car tuned. Team up means uh, carpool. But pump up. I like this. Jot this down. If we all kept our tires properly inflated, we could save almost 2 billion gallons of gas a year. And that's all? 2 billion just from keeping your tires pumped up. Number three. No, that's number three. Number four. Let me go back to number three. Because there's, this, there's an evangelical movement called the Evangelical Environment, Environmental Network. And they are challenging Christian and Adventist love affair with the SUVs. And they're asking the bumper sticker question, what would Jesus drive? <laughs> hmm? Drive through our parking lot after church today. Are we doing our best? To conserve gasoline and oil consumption. You say, Pastor, I see that you're driving a little Blazer SUV. Yeah, but it's a 1996. <laughs> Gets awful gas miles. I'm telling you the truth. 14 miles per gallon. Yeah. I know it's the Sabbath, but yes, if anybody wants to... What, did you say sell it? All right. <laughs> see me afterwards. All right, number four. Number four. Number four, make it quick. Jot this down, will you? On average, we each use 123 gallons of water per day, with 60 of them coming from a single 10-minute shower. You can save 12 gallons by cutting two minutes off your shower time. Look at that. Go green. Shower less. Now, that's not Ashley. That just kind of slipped in. I don't know how that got in there. Shower well, but shower shorter. That's the point. All right. Number five. Number five, recycle it. Write it down. Recycle it. The Environmental Protection Agency estimates that each of us produces 4.5 pounds of trash every day. Now, there's been a big... I've been, I've, faculty sent me their, uh, some of their emails. So there's been quite a discussion on campus over the last two weeks about recycling on this campus. And I'm not going to get into the thick of that. I do believe our provost has heard the conversation and is acting to respond. Ladies and gentlemen, we have got to recycle. We recycle here at the church. You see these Boltons that you... Lovingly leave behind when you exit this church. We take all of that. That all goes to recycling. Recycle, recycle. There's a website here. If you don't know where your recycle center is, recyclingcenters.org to find a center near you. Number six, go mobile. Now, this one surprised me. Buy your own thermos jug and get a water filter and do this. Write it down. When you purchase a one liter bottle of water, you are actually consuming six liters since plastic manufacturing requires five liters of water just to cool the plastic container before you get it. So you're drinking six. Every time you drink one, you're, you're spending six liters of water. Just use your own thermos. Fill it up. Drink out of that. You go, Ashley. Number seven, hug a tree. 
Listen, isn't this something, guys? Just by leaving receipts in the ATM machines and gas station pumps, we'll save over 3 billion feet of paper, enough to circle the globe 22 times. Amazing. Just, just, yeah, I don't need a receipt. Keep it. Sierra Club reminds us, by the way, to print on both sides or use the back sides of old documents for faxes and drafts. The average U.S. office worker goes through 10,000 sheets of copy paper a year. Number eight, charitize. What does Ashley mean by that? She means never throw old, old clothes away unless they're exceptionally uh, stinky. Take your clothes to the neighbor-to-neighbor. There's a little neighbor-to-neighbor center here in the village. You take it there. Take it to the Goodwill. Recycle your clothes. There is somebody on this planet who would love to have that outfit and not have to pay to have something to wear. Recycle your clothes. Charitize it. Give it to charity. Number nine. This is the two-mile challenge. Ashley says, if you're going two miles or less, park your car, walk your feet, lose the weight, and enjoy becoming green. Just park your car. Man, we don't have to drive that hundred yards. A hundred yards. I've got to drive to that parking lot across campus. Please. And finally, number 10, I want to add this. Ponder the green tree. I love this. Desire of Ages, page 660. Here's something for the green movement. To the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. The bread, and I'm thinking of our farmlands globally. The bread we eat is the purchase of His broken body. The water, I'm thinking of our rivers and streams, lakes and oceans. The water we drink is bought by His spilled blood. Listen to this. The cross of Calvary is stamped on every loaf. It is reflected in every water spring. Final line, would you jot it down? The death of Christ upon the cross in some mysterious way set in motion the regreening of a creation turned brown. Yep, redeeming of sinners, but of course, but also a regreening of nature as well. I'm telling you what, guys, to the cross of Christ, truly, 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 to the cross of Jesus, we owe it all. We owe everything to the cross of Christ. You know why, don't you? You know why? You know why we owe it to all to the cross? Because you remember when we were in Genesis 3 and God said, I'm going to curse the ground? Here's the word. The, the creator who said he cursed the ground came and bore that, bore that curse on Calvary itself. God bore the curse. You thought, it was, you thought it was Google that turned black in order to become green? No, 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 no. It is God who on that Friday turned very black in order for you and me to become very green. If any man is in Christ, if any woman is in Christ, she, he, is a green and new creation. Which is why, ladies and gentlemen, the Sabbath day is God's green earth day. Which means that of all people on this planet, you and I have got to lead the return to green. Let's pray. Oh God. Oh Creator. You make us green. You keep us green in Christ Jesus. And now, Holy Father, help us, help you turn your world back to green again. Amen.